Well, good evening, Sanctuary. It's so good to be here with you. My name is Tim. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm one of the pastors on staff at South San Francisco. Has anyone come up and visit our campus at South San Francisco before? Got a few people. So you guys got some homework to do. You're going to come out on Sunday and visit South City. No? I just see a lot of blank stares. Okay. It's cool. We're good up there. We don't, we don't need you. We're fine. We're good. It's good. No, uh, really privileged to be on staff here at Menlo. In fact, um, this is coming up on my 10th year on staff at Menlo. Yep, yep, really cool. Um, and actually, if you didn't know this, when I first started here, I started as a worship leader. Um, I don't lead a lot of worship anymore. I just do a lot of pastoring. Uh, but I started in this room as the sanctuary worship leader uh, 10 years ago. So this was sort of my first place. I've spent a lot of hours in this room. And I love this community um, and just so proud of you guys and grateful for this community. Um, that being said, I have an announcement to make. Yes, um, an opportunity came uh, my wife and I's way this just last couple of months that actually we are going to say yes to. This is a little bit unforeseen, and we announced it this week uh, to South City, but we are going to be relocating to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I know it seems like everyone's going to the Midwest, right? Michael Napstead's going to Wisconsin, and I'm going to Minneapolis. So I thought just to kind of get myself warmed up, I would just speak with a Minnesotan accent tonight and just elongate my vowels. I hope that's... Anyone from Minnesota out here? Anybody? All right, we got one. Yes. Do you have an accent? Good. Okay, good. That's a, that's a goal I aspire to achieve, uh, is to keep my Californian West Coast no accent. Um, but I'm just so grateful to be here with you. I'm excited about what we're talking about uh, in this series, The Broken Pulpit. You've had some great speakers so far. You've heard some great talks. Before we get into this content tonight, let's just take a second to pray uh, and just ready our hearts for what God might want to speak to us. If you would pray with me for a minute. Father, I thank you so much for these people, this community. Lord, you know every single person in this room. God, this morning when they woke up, you were there. Throughout their day, you're with them. And even right now, you are here with us by the presence of your Holy Spirit. And God, each one of us right now, we just open our hands and open our hearts to you and ask you to speak to us. And Lord, I pray that I would just get out of the way and that, God, you would be able to speak to the people that you love tonight. And Lord, we are so grateful for Stanford's win yesterday. Thank you, God, for that victory. And Lord, we're grateful. I don't know how you do it, God, but we're grateful for the starting lineup of the Golden State Warriors. It's like an all-star team, so whatever you did, keep on doing it. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's okay to pray for that. I don't know. Did it anyway. Um, so we're wrapping up this series on the broken pulpit where we've been asking a lot of important questions. Questions like, aren't churches filled with hypocrites? Don't you usually have a lot of people who claim to be loving but are not? And hasn't this been true historically? Doesn't the church have a history um, that's not really reputable, like the Inquisition or the Crusades, the burning of witches, sexual abuse in the church? Doesn't history demonstrate that Christianity is a defective product? Why would I become a Christian when the church is filled with so many hypocrites, when it has such a broken pulpit? 
And you may have noticed these words out in the cafe tonight. It says, everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, anything's possible. And I just want to say to you tonight that if you're here, um, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or you're a church dropout trying to find your way back. Or if you're anti-church and someone dragged you here because you wanted to meet other people. It doesn't matter. We're so glad that you're here. And I think tonight is going to be a really great night for you to hear about some of these questions. Um, So it turns out that hypocrisy is kind of an agreed-upon problem in the church. There's a little book, you may have heard of it, it's called Unchristian. It was written several years ago. And uh, in that book, there was a study done that shows that 84% of young adults outside of the church believe that the church is full of hypocrites, full of people who say one thing and do another. Um, And we actually have some things in common with them because it turns out that 34% of people, young people within the church, would agree with them would agree with them. So just to kind of start things off talking about hypocrisy, uh, you know, just because hypocrisy exists within a movement doesn't mean that that movement is completely in error, right? We see this all the time, that there are followers of certain things, that we aspire to do certain things we can't really follow through. There's this guy that I like to follow on Instagram. His name's The Rock. Do you guys follow The Rock? On Instagram, right? This guy is awesome. He's always posting. You guys all know The Rock. Come on. He's like the most highest paid actor or something. He works out. He eats clean. He's like the epitome of like goals and accomplishment. And yet, every once in a while, I see these posts that he throws up where he's just crushing some chocolate chip pancakes, tequila, maple syrup, peanut butter, and it's called his cheat day, right? When you guys have something, you have a cheat day because we just can't do it all the time. We got to take a break. That's my little, you know, throw out to hypocrisy. Sorry, Dwayne Johnson, you're not really a hypocrite. But the point is, we can't live up to these things all the time, it seems. And so to kind of level the playing field for us all today, I just want to let you in on a little secret about this series, The Broken Pulpit. And here's the truth. Every pulpit is a broken one. Every single pulpit in history. Romans 3.23 says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned, and all have fallen short of God's glory. 1 John 1.8, If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. James 2, I love this. Anyone who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it, because he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. There's that word murder, and Jesus talked about that. He said, you have heard that it was said You shall not commit murder. Anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. And Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The point is, every pulpit is broken. There is not a single church. There is not a single teacher that you follow on Instagram, a single preacher that you wish you could go to their church that doesn't have a broken pulpit. Because we are all sinners. Nobody's perfect. It's on our wall out there. Even here, even here. Um, I've got a funny story to tell about John. So I, uh, led, I've led worship at the, the 950 Santa Cruz Auditorium down there. Led there for about eight years with, with John. And there's a lot of stories you accumulate week in, week out, you know, as you're leading worship and doing creative things, trying things that don't work. So this is kind of a funny story of something that didn't work. John was preaching on uh, Mother's Day, because every year it comes around. And he had this great idea. He was like, man, Tim, I think it would be so cool if we sang this old song. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Mama Tried. 
And I was like, I've I've never heard of that song, but sure, John, whatever you want to do. And he was like, you know, what if we like had one of the exec pastors play harmonica and another person sing? And I was like, yeah, what if we came out like in overalls and we just hammed it up and it would be super funny? You guys don't think that's funny either. Man, we really thought it was a good idea. So we're there Saturday night, and I'm standing by the door. I'm in. We did worship. Went backstage. We changed. We got in the door. I was like, okay, Mama tried. Have you guys heard this song? Mama tried to make me better. Better learning I denied. That leaves only me to blame because Mama tried. Yeah, I didn't know it either. So we learned it, and we're standing by the door, and I'm looking at Charles Morgan, who's going to sing with me, and we're just looking at each other, and all of a sudden it comes on us. This is not a good idea. So we go out Saturday night. We run out there, and it's so unexpected. There's, you could have heard a pin drop, and we start playing this old, cheesy Boom Chuck song. He starts playing the harmonica. You know that the, the guy who's playing harmonica knew it wasn't working because he started shaking and playing wrong notes, if you can just imagine it. And then we get done, you know, get done, play the last chord. Ding. Silence. Nobody claps, nobody laughs, and uh, John gets up there, does some recovery joke, and then we're all in the back room afterwards, just looking at our feet, going, yeah, that was a terrible idea. So, ended up that we didn't do Mama Tried Again, it was kind of a one-hit wonder right there. Um, But the truth is, we all make mistakes, we all get it wrong. Um, Even our church here, even your pulpit, even your life, even mine. And it's true that teachers have a more heavy responsibility um, and accountability. James 3 says, not all of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Um, Jesus also says in Matthew 6, therefore, if anyone sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. James talks about the power of the tongue in the body, right? He says it's kind of like a ship that's steered by a very small rudder. He says that humans throughout history have tamed wild beasts. Anything can be tamed except the tongue. And it's interesting because even in the church, right, those who speak, like me, myself, or John, we steer the body here. So it's a very important responsibility. It's not to be taken lightly. Um, And yet, we who teach are not disqualified from the grace and the gospel of Jesus. I love Jesus. First of all, I just want to tell you, I just love Jesus. I love this man. I love reading about him. And tonight we're talking about becoming sanctuary, becoming sanctuary. And I think when you read the gospels, you see that Jesus, everywhere he went, he created little sanctuaries for people all over the place, little safety pockets of places to go and rest and be safe and be known and be understood and be loved. And he says this in Matthew. I love this verse. Maybe this is for you tonight. Are you having a real struggle? Come to me. Are you carrying a big load on your back? Come to me. I'll give you rest. Pick up my yoke and put it on. Take lessons from me because my heart is gentle, not arrogant. You'll find the rest that you deeply need. My yoke is easy to wear. My load is easy to bear. That sounds like a sanctuary to me. That is our namesake. So, tonight, welcome to the Church of the Broken Pulpit. We hope you like it here. 
We hope you find Jesus here. We hope you encounter his gentle, humble heart. We hope this place really lives up to its namesake, sanctuary. But just know that we're broken. Just know we're going to get it wrong just like everyone else. Just know we're going to do things like Mama tried, and it's not going to work. But there are more grave and serious things than just a bad creative decision, right? There are big things. There are sins that are very damaging, offensive, destructive. Right, break one, break them all. Um, But every sin carries a different weight. Andy Stanley, uh, another pastor with a broken pulpit, just because he's human, who I love, says every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Mama tried, poor creative choices. There's a little moment of humiliation, but moral failure hatred, prejudice, much, much deeper consequences. Generational, actually, sometimes. And just to address this, people will ask, how can you defend things like the Inquisition or the Crusades or the burning of witches or sexual abuse in the church? And the simple short answer of it is you just don't. You don't, and you can't. Those things must be confessed They must be repented over, wept over, and healing must be sought after when possible. When possible. And I want to say just one little thing. If you're here tonight and you have experienced hurt from a church, you've experienced one of these things that's been so hurtful to you. Maybe it took a lot of courage to come here. I just want to say... We're so glad that you're here, and I am so sorry. So sorry. And God can redeem anything, and I really believe that. And I hope that tonight he encourages you and speaks to you. So I want to talk and dig in a little bit about brokenness in the pulpit. Um, And it's a certain kind of brokenness that I want to talk about tonight. And I believe it's of particular importance because this kind of brokenness enables all the others to go unchecked. And thus, I would actually submit this is the most dangerous brokenness in the pulpit. Uh, And to exemplify this one, I want to tell one of my favorite stories from the life of Jesus. It's probably a story that you will know. But the religious leaders of the day, who didn't like Jesus very much, they were looking to trap him. They were looking to bait him and trap him because they wanted to kill him. And so they decided, some of you will know this story, they decided to go catch a woman in the act of adultery. They caught her, they brought her in public before Jesus and threw her down and picked up stones in their hands, right? You know this story. And said, Jesus, the law, the law would say that we should stone this woman. Sexual immorality, right? When you think about broken pulpits, that's kind of a big one. Sexual immorality. What do you say? And I love Jesus' response to this because he doesn't say, no, 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 don't do it, right? He says, okay, let you who have no sin be the first to throw a stone, right? We've all heard that. And I wish I could have been there because I imagine, it doesn't say this in the text, but I imagine that what we would have heard is silence And then 
one stone after another falling to the ground and people walking away. And right there in that moment, in the midst of an angry crowd ready to kill someone for a sin that they were wrongly caught in, Jesus created a little sanctuary. Created a little sanctuary. And here we see that the great, greater than the moral failure of this woman was the pride of those surrounding her. Was the pride of those surrounding her. What is pride? Simply put, pride is love of self, which is the antithesis of the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, but to lay down one's life, to sacrifice one's self for another. The dictionary definition, because I like to look up dictionary definitions, says a feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. So what does God have to say about pride? Turns out that he actually talks quite a lot about it throughout the Bible. In Proverbs 6, there's a list of things, kind of a famous list of things that God hates. Turns out that pride is at the top of that list. Isaiah 66 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says this. This is when the people of Israel were trying so hard to earn God's favor, to do a bunch of things. And this is what God says to them through the prophet Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where's the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. But these are the ones I will look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Peter writes in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, God resists the proud. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Pride is not really a broken pulpit we hear about a lot, right? You follow on Instagram or on like the news. You don't always hear like an article posted. You'll never believe this. We got a pastor that's really proud. But it's a very serious thing. And it's funny that Peter wrote this. We're going to look at that in just a minute of how he learned that lesson. It's actually cited multiple times in scripture, that verse, God resists the proud. So a question for us tonight is, are you feeling resisted? Because God is actively against pride. And I've been here for 10 years. I mentioned that earlier. And when I came in, I was in my 20s. I had a lot of dreams and vision. I had some talent. And I came in with a desire and a vision to really change a lot of things here. I was actually called arrogant by a lot of people. Can you believe that? Arrogant. But it was so true. And I'm so glad I get to speak on this tonight because as I was praying and thinking in the previous weeks leading up to tonight, I just felt like what God spoke to me was just share what you've learned <laughs> in 10 years. And this is the big lesson. This is the big lesson. Arrogance, uh, simply defined, is an inflated sense 
of self-importance. Inflated, unrealistic, untrue, right? That's what Jesus did in that moment is he set everyone's altitude to the right place, right? Everyone was down in the weeds thinking we've got this, but he zoomed out and said, no, no. You've got some arrogance here. We see this theme of humility over and over throughout the stories of the Bible, that God elevates the humble. He brings low the proud. Think about guys like Abraham. When Abraham and Lot were looking at the land, and Abraham said, well, Lot, whatever you want to take, that's fine. I'll just take the other one. That'll be okay. Abraham basically gave birth to the nation. Think of Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David. Oftentimes, we see that in order to make a person useful for his purpose, they must first be humbled. They must first discover the truth. Dallas Willard, someone that we'll quote a lot around here, um, he kind of defines humility as embracing reality. Anyone think of any celebrities that are kind of out of touch with reality? Don't say them out loud. (laughs) But you can think of some people that just have an inflated sense of reality. But in truth, it turns out we're not as smart, pretty, funny, holy, good, disciplined as we like to think. Or as we like to have others think that we are. The thing about pride, the thing about pride that really accentuates everything else is that um, pride always leads to hiddenness, right? It always leads to hiddenness. And because we don't want others to know the truth or we don't want to face the truth ourselves, Hiddenness is what sin needs to survive. Darkness. It's so funny because sin seems like such a powerful thing in our lives when it's hidden, but when you bring it into the light, it actually becomes much less powerful, which is why James says, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. God set up the world to do his best work through people, and so when we confess to each other, God gets to move in and work in those dark, secret corners of our heart, but pride makes us hide those things. In the broken pulpit, pride is the worst thing because it allows the other things to continue. It allows the other things to continue until a small problem becomes a big problem. Sexual immorality, money embezzlement, lying, cheating, stealing, prejudice, discrimination. Pride keeps people from experiencing the fullness of God's love and keeps people from extending that love to others. Pride is the enemy of love. It's a true love blocker. Think about how many broken pulpits you've heard of. Have you ever heard of a pastor that came out on the news, something happened? What if the first time something like that happened, they had just gone to somebody, right? Let someone in. But it's that pride. It's that fear of what will other people think of me. And when we hide that, it's called hypocrisy. Interesting thing about the word hypocrisy, uh, Jesus basically invented this word. The word hypocrite is used seven time, 17 times in the New Testament. It is only used by Jesus, and there is, in fact, no other word that is so singularly his. Um, this is just kind of an interesting thing uh, to think about, but I don't, has anyone been to Israel before? Been out to Israel? All right, me too. Um, if you go to Israel, there is a little town called Sipporah, less than an hour's walk away from Nazareth. And in that town, in Jesus' day, was one of the greatest theaters in the region. This is it right here. We got that theater. 
There it is, seating about 3,000, 4,000 people. Most scholars would say that it is a probability that a craftsman from Nazareth named Joseph and his young apprentice son, Jesus, would have found work helping to construct this great building project. Imagine Jesus as a boy being at least familiar with this theater, seeing actors on it, growing up in the synagogue, learning, teaching, and seeing teachers of the law. And he made the connection and coined this word for religious people, this word, hypocrites, which literally means play actor. This is from Dallas Willard. This is a great quote. It is clear from the literary records that it was Jesus alone who brought this term hypocrisy and the corresponding character into the moral record of the Western world. It is ironic that even when precisely when we criticize the church for producing hypocrites, we actually pay tribute to this man, Jesus, whose teaching gave us the picture of hypocrisy that shapes our moral understanding 2,000 years later. He mentions it 17 times. This is a big deal to Jesus. And by the way, if it's a big deal to you, you're in great company. Jesus talks about the religious people of the day like people who clean the outside of a cup, right? They clean the outside, but they neglect the inside. And the problem with all of us isn't just that the inside of the cup is a mess. Uh, it is a problem. But it's that you clean the outside to make everyone else think that the inside looks great. Jesus says the hypocrites or play actors are blind. Blind. Oftentimes, it's not just that we're hiding our sin from others, but we cannot see the gravity of it from ourselves. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, He who does not think he is conceited is very conceited indeed. Uh, so if you're here tonight and you don't think you're conceited, well, talk to C.S. Lewis. Uh, our lead pastor, John, I love his teaching. He says, I may not know the depths of the private me because this has to do with my heart, and this is known fully only to God. This is what matters the most. This is a big emphasis in the New Testament writings. It is the concern for the heart, for that which is visible and knowable to God alone that made the ugliness of hypocrisy posing, acting in the public realm so vivid. And you know what? This can be true of me. This is a broken pulpit place. Um, and I want to just talk for a second about this guy that I love in the Bible. This guy's name is Peter. Everyone say Peter. There you go. A little bit louder. I know we're hitting like that 15 minute mark where everyone's brain starts just going like this. Everyone say Peter. There we go. Peter was a fisherman. Peter was uneducated, uncouth, a bit rough around the edges. Peter was passionate, outspoken, convicted. You know, if you were God and you sent Jesus to the earth to make like an all-star team to start your church, you'd think you would pick like all-star people, right? You'd pick the Golden State Warriors. You wouldn't pick the C team from a high school in Juneau, Alaska, where they probably don't even play basketball. I don't even know. I've never been to Alaska. I thought that would be funny. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. And Peter was there to hear Jesus give the Pharisees many scathing diagnoses of the heart. But Peter was proud. Peter was proud. I'm not sure that he knew just how proud. But Peter argued along with the other disciples over who would be the greatest of the disciples. Peter had a broken pulpit. And yet Jesus said of Peter, on this rock... 
not the rock. On this rock, on this broken pulpit, I will build my church. So the good news is there is so much hope for the church, for the broken pulpit. In fact, it is the hope. The hope is in its brokenness. The hope is in our brokenness when we don't hide it. Check this out. One day when Jesus was telling his disciples that he would have to suffer many things, and Peter, so full of passion and some low self-awareness, said, I will never let that happen to you. A well-intended comment, but he was lacking some serious perspective. He had an overinflated sense of self, importance, and capabilities. He did this a lot, and I love it because it gives me hope, right? Jesus had a very rough night, you might say, with his friends the day that he was betrayed. Uh, When Jesus washed Peter's feet before the Last Supper, Peter tried to stop him. He said, and Jesus said, this must be done or you can have no part of me. And then Peter said, well, wash all of me, right? He's so dramatic. And yet hours later, hours after he said, wash all of me, I will never deny you. Hours later, he couldn't even stay awake. He was one of the three people that Jesus said, hey, you three, come with me. I'm going to pray before the hardest night in eternity. And he fell asleep. He couldn't even stay awake. Such an out-of-touch-with-reality guy, but so well-meaning. He didn't realize how much he needed help. And later that night, we see the last miracle Jesus ever performs. Jesus is in the garden with some of his disciples, and the soldiers come to seize him, to take him away, to have him crucified. And Peter picks up a sword, and he cuts off the ear of a man named Malchus. Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away. He picks up the ear. He puts it back on Malchus's head. I'm sorry about my disciple Peter. I've been working on him for three years. Haven't gotten very far. I apologize about the ear thing. Can you imagine when Malchus got home for dinner that night and his wife asked, so how did work go today? Well, my ear got cut off, but the strangest thing happened. The man who I came to have crucified on a cross, he healed me. He loved me. I helped to have him arrested. I helped to have him killed. But he created a little sanctuary for me. Jesus tried to warn Peter that Peter would deny him, that Peter had a broken pulpit. But Peter just wouldn't accept it. Matthew 26. Then Jesus told them, this very night, You will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Does that sound like arrogance to anyone else? Jesus looked at him and said, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared again, even if I have to die with you. I will never disown you. So dramatic. I love it. I love Peter because I feel a lot like him sometimes. And this night, the thing is, when Peter denied Jesus, because he did, it was a pivotal moment in Peter's transformation. This is the key to this whole thing. Not because his pulpit was broken, but because he had an epiphany of how broken it truly was. Another little nugget from C.S. Lewis, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. Anyone tried to be good? Anyone tried to keep that diet going or that workout regime going or really just never miss on whatever it is you think you need to do? (laughs) 
The rooster crowed, and Peter had a realization. He had an internal epiphany. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. I'm not as committed as I thought. I've heard Jesus talk about these play actors, these hypocrites. I've been so glad that I'm not like them, but guess what? Turns out, I am no better. I am no different. This was a grace epiphany. And through this experience, Peter's discipleship went from the theological rhetoric to transformational reality as happens in our own lives too when we are humbled, when we come face to face with our brokenness. A pivot point like this sometimes occurs when and through an overwhelming trial, test, tragedy, disappointment, hardship, a physical challenge, illness, failure, embarrassment, rejection, revelation, or divine intervention. When this happens, a permanent interchange reshapes your values. A permanent interchange reshapes who you are, your nature, your perspective, your attitude, and overall God view of life. These moments will create a word-became-flesh moment when your carnal nature and will is crucified with Christ and your inner spiritual person becomes forever transformed into Christ-likeness by God's Spirit. Peter had a lot of moments with Jesus. But this one changed everything. It says he went out and he wept bitterly. And maybe you've had a pivot point recently in your life. Maybe you're here and you're in the middle of one right now. Maybe you feel resisted. Maybe nothing is going your way. Maybe you're looking around and it seems like Nothing's coming together or it's somebody else's problem or fault that is affecting you. The amazing thing about this experience is that it ends up being the ultimate preparation to fulfill God's calling and purpose. I will make you fishers of men, calling and purpose and it occurs at his lowest point of personal failure when he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. But it didn't end there with Peter. From that spiritual basement of impossible-to-forget brokenness, Peter began a seven-week inner transformation ascent to fulfillment when in Acts 2 he was filled with the Holy Spirit and preached the first and greatest sermon of the post-resurrection era that saw 3,000 come to Christ and baptized in one day. In one day, seven weeks. And so maybe you're here tonight and you're weeks away. A weeks away. You just don't know. Even in the book of Acts, we read this. We see um, this evidence that Peter and John, as they stand before the teachers of the law, they're very educated religious leaders. And what they say is when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, but they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They'd been with him. That phrase does not come cheap, my friends. To become one who is recognized as of having been with Jesus takes more than just being with him on a mountaintop experience at a camp or in worship when it feels really good. It takes being with Jesus in his suffering. coming face-to-face -face with your own brokenness, your broken pulpit, when all we have left truly is him. We sang it tonight, Christ is enough. 
Christ is enough. And these experiences become pivotal moments in our lives when we have a realization that nobody's perfect. The thing is, Jesus' overzealous followers have historically been a painful problem to him, almost as painful as anyone else. See, for Jesus, though, the categories break down like this. It's not us and them, right? It's not Peter and Malchus. It's simply perfect and not perfect. It's holy and it's sinful. So, question in summary, who is the perfect and holy side? How long is that list of names? Here in church, this is pretty much a free shot here. So, who's on the holy side? Jesus, just one, and that's it. And so who's on the sinner side? The rest of us. Now, the good news is the whole human race, it turns out, to be on the same side of that one division. The bad news is we're on the wrong side. The good news is Jesus comes from this side over to this side and becomes one of us because, you see, even the greatest pulpit in history was broken by sin. The greatest pulpit of all time was touched and broken by sin, but it wasn't because of hypocrisy, and it wasn't because of a moral failure, and it wasn't because of pride. It was broken by God-purposed humility and loving sacrifice for the sake of that which God loves most, you, all people, all people. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, had gone astray. Each has turned to her own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But it didn't end there. The story wasn't over at the broken pulpit because Jesus rose again, defeating death, defeating sin, not just defeating, but now redeeming all of us. So we're turning a broken pulpit into a sanctuary. That's what this community is all about. We want to turn the angry crowd of proud people into a sanctuary for the shamed and guilty. We want to turn the broken pulpit at the cross into the resurrected life of Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit that rose him from the dead is alive and available to you and to me. Through humility, through love, through grace. Because we are no different. And we will only see sanctuary fulfill its namesake within these four walls and outside of these walls when we see it fulfilled inside of our hearts. When we can put down our stone. When we can be the kind of place where it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. Where it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or you're a church dropout or you're anti-church because we love you. And we're not just talking love. We're going to do it. We're going to serve. This is my final quote. This is from my, probably in my top three books of all time. This is from The Road to Character by David Brooks. It's short, but this is what it says. Love expresses itself in shared smiles and shared tears and ends with the statement, love you, I am you. 
That is love. That is what God calls us to be and to do. I've got one last story. This is a personal story. It's not in my notes. So you guys ready? Everyone say, Tim, we're ready. You know, I'm moving, so I can pretty much say whatever I want, right? This is happening. When I came here, I said that I was very um, driven, had a lot of vision. I wanted to accomplish a lot. I wanted to build a lot. And one of the first things I was tasked with, uh, when I first came here at all of our main services, we had a choir and an organist in our church services on the weekend. Did you know that? Our main services. We had a choir and an organ. And when I came in, you can guess what my first thought was, right? You got to get rid of that. And I spent the next four years basically doing that and moving out this legacy ministry that had been there for so long, but I had so much vision and drive, and I really didn't care about them. That makes sense, right? We, we don't want an organ in our service. We want a rock band. But I broke a lot of relationships with that choir. And we did a lot of incredible things in that season. And actually, I got to accomplish a lot, and I was very proud of myself. And in fact, at Sanctuary, I've got some highlight reels from things that we accomplished. Here we go. This is some, there's Nick Douglas on the banjo. Yeah, this was one of our Christmas events. That's me. Yeah, that's another one, right? Sankmas, you guys ever hear the concert before Christmas that we used to do? Um, you know, one of the things that bothered me so much about the choir, who I love now, by the way, I'm about to tell you that story, but bothered me so much is they would talk about the glory days. They would talk about the times when, man, we would minister to so many people and so many people would come and listen to us. And these people had been in this choir for 50 years, I'm well before I was born. And I'd just be like, man, you guys are so just stuck in the past, full of yourselves. And I just loathed it. And then you know what's funny is we built this thing. The team actually named me, you may not know this, named me Father Sankmas because we started it in this room in like 2010. And it grew and grew and grew. And then I got seriously humbled by my own pride and was actually kind of given a different task than what I had here at this church. And I was not happy about it. And guess what the task was? To direct the choir. After so many years, after building something that I thought was so successful and moving the ball forward and bringing change. But I had arrogance. I had a lot of arrogance. I thought I was the shiz. Do people say that? No. But you know what? It's funny. Uh, what I judged the choir for is what I was so upset about. Because we didn't do the concert before Christmas anymore. You notice we don't do it anymore. And I was so upset because that was my baby. I even handed it off, but I was still over it. Man, remember how awesome it was that people came. And then I found myself in my own basement with the choir, with this group that I had ostracized and made to feel left out and kicked out. And I remember, you may know Frank Vanderswan. He's a pastor on staff. My first rehearsal with the choir, because I'm, I'm a classically trained vocalist, you know, so I know how to do it. 
my first rehearsal, Frank's like, you stay up here. I'm going to go talk to them. They are really not happy that you're coming down to be their director. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? But you know what? When I prayed about it, I didn't feel like God had released us from this place, that I was still called to serve. So Frank went down, and then I went down. And you know what happened over that year? We reconciled. I spent a year down there in the basement loving these people, reconciling, going to coffee, hearing their stories, hearing how I had hurt them. And maybe there could have been a better way to do it. I don't know. I'm not here to diagnose it. But all I know is that I had a moment where I realized something. I realized that pride, arrogance, looking at other people and saying, man, you guys just don't get it. If I were doing that job, I'd do a way better job, obviously. Why don't they just figure it out? Why can't they just do this? What's wrong with those people? What I discovered is that's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy that when you have that inside of you, you limit yourself. You get less. You get diminished, right? The proud become humble. But when you just bring love, joy, validity to everybody that you see and you see them how God sees them and you realize that it's not about a woman caught in adultery, it's actually about the people holding stones, you get given more. You get released. You have joy. You bring peace everywhere that you are. And so what's really funny is I went from the basement directing the choir to then being a campus pastor, <laughs> which I never thought I'd be in a million years. But I had a heart transformation. It's something I actually talked with John and our leaders about throughout the process. And it was a true epiphany moment for me. And now we're leaving to Minneapolis. And it is so sad for us because we've been here 10 years and we love it. I love the choir. You know what I did when I decided that we were going to take this opportunity? I emailed the choir president who I had actually removed. <laughs> we're now friends and I emailed her and I said, Kate, I have some news. Let's get coffee. Because I realized I'm no different than you. I understand. And I'm sorry. So tonight, I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what situation you're facing. But if we want to create sanctuary, it starts with creating sanctuary in here. Right here. Loving others as yourself saying no to pride and self-love, even when we don't realize it. I didn't know I was proud. So let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I believe that you're at work tonight. God, and I don't know if anything I said really stuck with anyone, but maybe there was something that you spoke to people tonight. Lord, I pray you'd give us ears to hear you, not to hear a person, not to hear Tim, but to hear your spirit. Whatever situation we're facing, Lord, may we take the lesson from your follower that you loved, Peter. Peter, who had so low self-awareness on the C team, God but you saw something in him. And Lord, you see something in every single one of us. God, I pray that we would let you finish your work in us. That you would finish your work in us, God. We open our hands to you. I pray that you would reveal to us where we have 
hidden pockets of pride, self-love, arrogance that are going to keep us from being the redeemed broken pulpit that you want us to be. So have your way in our hearts, Lord, that we might create little sanctuaries everywhere that we find ourselves. In Jesus' name.